0: People often ask me, what is your favorite Onnit product? And it's always a funny question because I'm so deeply involved in all of the products that we create from the conception to the actualization. I'm right there in the process. So it's like picking one of your kids. But now we have a new kid that just came on, and that's our almond milk latte emulsified MCT oil. And I started working on this when we had the idea with Brendan Schaub to create this kind of instant almond milk latte that had incredibly healthy ingredients which of course is the emulsified mct oil so it has all that rich creaminess that you would get from that perfect almond milk latte just that tinge of sweetness which we do without sugar using those plant-based natural sweeteners that don't have a glycemic index that don't have any additional carbohydrate and support that ketogenic diet with that mct oil which is going to provide you that direct energy source support your weight management goals support your cognition goals mct is great across the board for all of that but the real benefit is that you can grab a cup of iced coffee i like doing it with the nitro squirt some of this in and just stir it and you get that instant iced latte experience and if it's a hot coffee you can do the same thing just squirt it in and it tastes like a delicious almond milk latte without you having to do any of the work no blenders or anything required you just have an instant almond milk latte and it's in my opinion our best flavor that we've come out with yet i mean the emulsified mct oils across the board change the game but this one particularly changes the game and i really encourage you guys to give it a try I think it's one of the best products that we've come out with in a long time. So go to onnit.com/slash aubrey and check out our brand new emulsified almond milk latte MZT oil. There are characters that you might see in movies, in books, in novels, but you don't think you'll actually ever get to meet one of them, and that's how I felt until I met Don Howard Lawler. He is the epitome of the grandfather of all humanity. Of Gandalf, the white wizard of the highest form of shamanism and the highest form of carrying a medicine. I've worked with him countless times doing both Wachuma and ayahuasca. And I had the privilege of sitting down with him at my ranch in Sedona. And we drop in on one of the longest podcasts to date that tells his entire story. And I hope you guys enjoy it. Sit back, relax, have a puff of a pipe, have a tea. Dig in and enjoy the legacy of one of the most amazing men I've ever met. It's nice to be sitting here with you, man.
1: Nice to be sitting here with you, brother. Yeah. Great you know, reunion.
0: It is a great reunion. I mean, I think that uh, that trip to Peru was that first one with the Huachuma, one of the more transformative moments of my life, you know, going out there and experiencing not only the medicine a new medicine brand new medicine i mean Wachuma was just an idea you know you hear about san pedro mm-hmm. didn't even know that it was called Wachuma, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and you go out and experience that and then the mesa and we'll talk about all these things for everybody but then experiencing the mesa as well and understanding those energetic forces and then the beautiful land that you cultivated and the relationships with the local people that you cultivated and then you know the medicine itself and the energies that you brought in from the elements and then of course the special surprise at the end you know a dance with the sacred itself <laughs> <laughs> you know all of that together um was just fucking remarkable and now here we are it's been what five years since then four years Boy,
1: it's, it seems like a thousand and, mm-hmm. and and one at the same time
0: yeah yeah it does definitely like and all of the forces that had to come together to make that a possibility, (laughs) you know, all the things. But now here we are in the Red Rock. Perfect convergence. (laughs) Indeed, (laughs) indeed. So tell everybody, you know, a little bit of your story because I think it's pretty interesting. You, you know, where you grew up and kind of where you come from to get you to this point, just to give people a a little bit of context.
1: Well, uh, my story began uh, in rural Kentucky and um, I grew up in a rural community uh, where people most of the people had uh, country backgrounds and their um, <clears throat> forebears had had lived pretty much the same lifestyle for several generations my generation was really the first generation to fly the coop so to speak and and leave the home base and venture out into the world at large and venture you did. And venture I did. Uh, but that came later. The outer and inner worlds
0: have <laughs> been well-traveled.
1: Yeah, yeah. But um, my, my orientation to med- plant medicine, medicinal plants, herbology, and so forth, uh, really was uh, based in my relationship with my grandmother. My grandmother was, um, had that, the same background I've, I've just described, Um, and she had uh, dedicated herself to, at least in part, to um, bringing herbal medicine to local people. Uh, At that time, in that culture, her role was described as uh, a root doctor. Mm -hmm. That was just the the country term. So that was like
0: an acceptable kind of country meme for that idea, because... People have gotten in trouble all over the years trying to provide herbal medicine. I mean, that's oh, yeah. like the basis for all of these witch hunts for thousands of years. Absolutely, right? you know, just absolutely tapping into those forces. Yeah. But root doctor was something that kind of snuck into this like acceptable kind of concept. Where you're from in Kentucky?
1: Yeah, and and in that, that culture. But but she was really the last generation uh, that that just fully embraced that in in that area. I'm sure there are people still today practicing that in their own communities. You know, but. Uh, People like that don't gain uh, fame and glory on a large uh, scale, you know. They're usually well-known in their local communities, and, and that, was, that was her base of service, you know.
0: It's the same in South America with uh, Coranderos there, you know, very, generally. Very much the same. Serving when, the when village.
1: I, yeah, when I finally made it to Peru uh, and got out uh, in, the, in the jungle environment, the jungle culture, I felt very much at home because I was seeing people do the same kinds of things that I saw – Growing up in, in rural Kentucky, and um, <clears throat> my grandmother told uh, told me that uh, she learned about uh, medicinal plants from her grandmother. So in my in my lineage, it's apparently kind of skipped a generation uh-huh. each turn. You know, my mother wasn't my mother. Marvelled at what my grandmother knew about it, but she didn't have much interest in learning to do it herself. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> so that really got me oriented. Uh, the concept of plants as as medicine. And at the same time, uh, as part of that, my grandmother did a lot of uh, um, running around in the woods and fields gathering plants. Some of them were seasonal. A good many of the plants she she used to make uh, Uh, herbal medicine were wildflowers of different kinds and of course everybody knew about the flowers but not many people knew about the medicine they contained
0: it's so crazy because you're in an environment and we're so disconnected from that environment we have no idea what kind of plants are around us that can be remedies oh absolutely until you're with somebody who knows what's going on i actually know more about sedona plants because i've just done nature walks with parangi who understands the local area yeah it's like oh this is mormon's tea you can eat this oh these berries you can eat when they're red you know this is bearberry this is good for this this is you know and you have these different concepts where you start to learn then you really appreciate the land a lot more and you see beyond just the ocular visual Mm -hmm. representation of what's out there and you start to understand it a little deeper and then you go somewhere like the amazon where there's thousands of species and you realize how potent the plant doctors are there just being able to draw from an environment that's that rich in versatility
1: and these are just specific geographic examples of what really is available to people in most areas of the world yeah and i think that's why uh, shamanism as it has has uh, grown and evolved over millennia has uh, always been based on a a uh, a human spiritual esoteric connection with nature something beyond the material so the purely material and um, so what you just described in your experiences here around Sedona is pretty much the way I I got brought into it uh, in Kentucky running around in the, the fields and woods of Kentucky digging sassafras root and uh, mayapple root when it's in season gathering wildflowers to make medicine and, uh people a lot of people would come to my grandma's house when i was there she lived out in the country of course and um that that actually is where i spent most of my younger years uh living with and spending time with my grandma i probably Mm -hmm. spent more time with my grandmother than i did with my my parents uh, during that period
0: so that gave you that initial basis that understanding that plants could be used Mm -hmm. for different purposes and then you know pretty soon as you Grew from adolescence into adulthood you started discovering the psychedelic plants and i wish we had all the time to go to all the stories of when you were working in the you know reptology department yeah. and all of these things yeah. but needless to say you started exploring the more psychoactive plants that were available right. and that was kind of the middle years of your course when did you finally make you know feel the calling to make that move out to uh, out to peru
1: well what, came, what, what preceded that really was uh, an emerging interest in Native American culture, Native American spirituality. And that was based on stories my grandmother told me of her grandmother, who she said was, uh, was uh, part Native American. And uh, I guess that was the, the catalyst for that focus of interest starting probably when I was probably 10, 10, 11 years old, uh, being a precocious reader and uh, little bit ahead of my uh, grade level in, in terms of my uh, uh, ability to dig out information from various sources. I, I really focused on that very much in my early formative years. And it was really through uh, learning about Native American spirituality that, uh, and by the way, those were the uh, spiritual concepts that I resonated most with. I was actually raised in a very fundamentalist Christian environment so uh, i had a heavy dose of conventional religion in the early going yeah that didn't stick too well well, um, some of the concepts did but uh, the religiosity didn't resonate with me uh, and i didn't really find the kind of uh, spiritual connection that a lot of people find through going to church and reading the bible and things of that nature and i have nothing negative to say about that if that's a choice Mm -hmm. people make but at the same time, uh, I think that leaves a lot of vacant spaces in a lot of people's uh, spiritual worldview, if you will.
0: I think that's the fundamental difference, and I think we've talked about this before, the fundamental difference between religion and spirituality or shamanism is one's a tell game and one's a show game. You mm-hmm. know, One... You invite people into the house of experience where they get to look around for themselves and open the drawers and check the shelves look in the mirror you know feel what they feel rather than someone dictating this is what the house looks like this is what you see this is what you get to pick up don't open that drawer don't you dare open that drawer there's dangerous things in that drawer you know whereas in the other game it's like here's the you know here's the whole pantry like go for it explore see what you see
1: i've never responded well to to uh, spoon-fed dogmas right I've always questioned authority, you know, and uh, including those authorities, which to some would be considered blasphemy, but uh, I never felt it was disrespectful. I felt the questions I was asking were legitimate questions that uh, needed answers. Anything
0: that's true can withstand the, the, you know, questions and withstand those tests and prize if yeah. it's made of real steel like the truth of steel it's not going to rip and tear like tinfoil when you start poking at right, it you right. know and that's that's how you test it i think all things should be battle tested like your spirituality yeah. should be robust enough that you can invite anybody to start you know okay go ahead poke on it ask me some questions yeah. if i don't know i don't know you know that's yeah. that's a fine
1: answer but I you're don't not scared of the a good answer, right yeah. yeah exactly yeah so those those were those were the Primary factors that kind of steered me away from from a fundamentalist Christianity as a path, uh, and uh, more into the uh, the Native, Native American perception of uh, uh, sacredness of the earth, the idea that uh, we have a spiritual mother, we have a spiritual father, and we are the uh, product of that union, as it were, and that um, that made enormous sense to me when i was first exposed to it and um, i felt like i'd found at least found my path if not all the answers you find the answers by walking the path yeah you find your own answers and um and so it was that orientation to native american spirituality uh, that eventually um, brought me to an awareness of the use of peyote as a sacred plant as a sacred medicine that was my first concept of of a uh, holistic uh, plant medicine, really. Whereas the, so the that others, was your
0: first psychedelic experience. Was no, paley. that was my first psychedelic. And uh, was that on your own, or was that in kind of a, a ceremonial
1: context? Both. Both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I had already uh, evolved to the point where I realized that uh, <clears throat> if anything is considered sacred, there there is almost inevitably some sort of ritual or ceremonial um, uh, dimension to that, that kind of practice. So I studied, I did my due diligence in, in my anthropological study and research, and um, probably the, um, the anthropological writing that had the greatest influence on me at that time was a book written by a famous anthropologist named Weston Labar, who uh, wrote a book called The Peyote Cult, and it was the product of an extended um, anthropological study of peyotism among the uh, Southern Plains tribes in uh, North America and became the definitive work on the subject. And was especially unique in that uh, Weston Labar kind of broke the, one of the cardinal rules of anthropology, which is not to become personally involved in, your, in the subject of your studies
0: yeah that's imagining people are going to be robots though (laughs) like tell the person who studies the chimps not to like the chimps that they study like it's not possible you're going to develop affections and affinities and we're emotional beings yeah
1: yeah well he broke that he broke that rule and that set him apart from the the crowd at the time and it also uh, gave him the uh, necessary insight to fully understand what the uh, native american people were experiencing in the peyote ceremonies the actual nature of the uh of the medicine itself, the effects it has on on a person, uh, body, mind, and spirit. Peyote is a holistic medicine, just like ayahuasca and wachuma. In fact, I consider it to be the uh, the third of the great sacred triumvirate of the of the Western world. Mm-hmm. The Western meaning uh, the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I took that on, following pretty much the the. Um, Framework and construct that uh, Labar described for the Native American ceremonies that he had participated in And so I did the setup, you know following that those guidelines and um, My my first experience with peyote was in the wilderness by myself in a, uh, a place uh, which Had to me the same kind of energy and magic that that you live with here mm-hmm. uh, in Sedona and um as I said the other day in our conversation, it had me at hello. <laughs> uh, I realized I was onto something really big. I, I, I realized major personal transformation, spiritual awakening in that moment, even though I'd had lesser spiritual awaken, awakenings earlier, uh, that seemed to catalyze all of that and gave me a, a sense of uh, direction for my life, understanding I was part of something much bigger. Uh, that was probably my first full full realization of that concept of oneness, how that magic that, that we first, revere so much how magic know?
0: that first experiential taste nothing like know? it it's so yeah. it 's so mind blowing you know i 've told the story i 'm not going to tell it again about my vision quest at eighteen, you know where mine was psilocybin out in the mountains, and that experience is just you know you go in kind of terrified, I was clutching a rock, holding it tight, and then mm-hmm. you just blast everything open and and like you said you know feel truly not alone for the first time because you feel connected to everything right and that's that feeling you know recalibrates the whole system you know i went into that mostly an atheist and i came out going oh shit (laughs) i got a lot (laughs) to figure out i got a lot to figure out yeah so that same so that same you know kind of concept of going doing the research understanding the background and history You applied that to a culture that not a lot of people know about and i know i'm fast forwarding here because i definitely want to go pretty deep on this but you did that again with the culture of shavin yes and i really want to talk about Shaveen because that's not in the lexicon of what people are talking about right now and it it very well should be from everything i know about Shaveen. so you know talk to us about when you kind of got savvy to that and in the process of kind of uncovering what this culture was really all about
1: Well, there's an interesting route to that as well. Uh, It's kind of a a bit of a sidetrack, but um, in this life, I will say, I first heard of Chavin in an article, uh, and I forget the uh, publication, it was a magazine article uh, that was an interview of Pablo Picasso. And in that article, Picasso was asked, what what has been the greatest um, artistic influence, the greatest influence on your art? I still and, he's, I and he and he said simply one word, chavin wow and i must I was probably ten or eleven years old at this time as I said, I was kind of an advanced reader. I was reading things that most most kids my age were not even remotely interested in uh, and um somehow that got my attention, and um I kind of looked into that a little further, found some books on on uh, uh art art of the you know ancient art of the world, you know. I uh, found some photographs of, of some of the classic pieces of uh, Chavin art. You know, the Lanzon, the uh, Stella Raimondi, uh, the uh, the one that we, we usually refer to now as El Huachumero, uh, the classic image of the transforming shaman carrying a a stalk of, of Huachuma mm-hmm. leading the ceremonial procession. I didn't have a full understanding of the... Uh, of the meaning and significance of those things. In fact Why the, is that guy uh, carrying a cactus? <laughs> yeah. what, what's
0: he transforming into?
1: Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Those are all those are all things that were enigmatic at that point. Yeah. Now I understand fully. I, I have a very thorough and pretty deep understanding of the uh, meaning and message in, in the Chavin art. Uh well only because you've done it a couple of thousand times. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> that that, <laughs> that helps. helps understand the leading the procession holding the cactus yeah. and transforming and you know each time you do it if you're not sleeping in class and paying attention and uh, not only to the guidance that you may or may not be receiving in the ceremony itself but also the uh, the messages and teachings that are in, embedded in nature so i've never i've never undertaken any of this work outside of a natural setting or a natural context uh, i think they're really inseparable mm-hmm. um any of these things, of course, can be done in an urban setting, and you can construct a ceremonial setting that is uh, more or less conducive to the deep, um, co- deeper connections on a personal level. But it's hard to find a really deep, profound connection with nature in the middle of an urban uh, right. environment. So, um, and that, of course, took me back to my early beginnings, and my first realization of a sacred setting really was uh, the forest. Or the woods, as my grandmother called it, the place where my grandmother went to collect a lot of the plants, and she'd take me along. And I remember um, she'd be off digging a hole somewhere, and I would just be standing there looking up at the, at the uh, trees and getting this sense of being in a cathedral.
0: Okay. And like I always thought that the was. Light splashing through the leaves, like oh, stained yeah. glass. Uh, it yeah, it was
1: just like magical, uh, mystical. <clears throat> and um, I realized in those moments that uh, that was my. Uh, that was going to be my church, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found far more connection with the sacred there than than I have yet to to find in a uh, what you might call a constructed religious setting that is kind of disconnected from the uh, from that uh, essential connection with nature. Mm-hmm. So then,
0: following back to following back to Shavin, you get on the, you get on the scent early and then that's kind of leave something in your mind that you want to go back and kind of follow up yeah. and then probably the peyote experience understanding that peyote and Wachuma are both you know mescaline based psychedelics obviously a lot of other plant components in there making them different and similar in certain ways but then you know was it first an experience of Wachuma or was it continued study of chavine that led you to Where well did that go
1: well, it was kind of a circuitous rooting. Um, I worked with peyote exclusively for about five years from about, and that, that was from about 1969 until about 1975. And um, I became quite dedicated to that. I began to, uh, I didn't presume uh, to conduct ceremonies for anyone but myself for the first couple of years in that, but gradually began to accept Close um, friends, people who uh, I knew would respect the process, you know, and mm-hmm. take it seriously, not just consider it just a, another drug experience, and uh, who had somewhat the same kind of orientation that I had. So um, I began to to uh, develop a little circle of of uh, people who would come and uh, do do those ceremonies with me. I had a teepee that I made myself, and it was small enough to be portable, so. Um I lived I lived in Atlanta, Georgia at the time and uh when my weekends rolled around I'd already have my had my VW van packed and up and ready to packed. roll yeah. and I uh, TP on already uh, stacked and I uh, would head to the North Georgia woods and um I had several places in the wilderness areas that I'd go and set up my TP and not see another human being for the whole time I was up there and uh do my medicine work do my personal ceremonies and you know as I say eventually I began to Uh, bring some other people along to participate in that. Never got very big, you know, and um, of course being here in the United States and uh, in this incarnation appearing to be a white man, I had to uh, uh, be concerned about the the legal aspects of what I was doing as well. So I had to, you know, play cat and mouse at times and, uh, you know, Kind of stay in the closet. What are you doing you in well. that teepee, boy? <laughs> Don't hear that sound. <laughs> I, I think I heard that a time or two. <laughs> the Georgia State Troopers coming in. The North Georgia Rangers weren't used to <laughs> encountering a teepee in the North Georgia yeah. wilderness. But that didn't have to be any gay stuff going on in there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I continued to work with peyote until about 1975, and then it was kind of an interesting thing. Um, in a peyote ceremony, I got a message, uh, which I took to come from the plant, that um, I'd learned my lessons well, and it was time to graduate to another teacher. Meet my cousin. And I was not, I, I didn't greet that message with great enthusiasm, to be honest, at the time, because I, I felt like I'd found my medicine, I'd found my uh, role in relation to it, and I kind of wasn't ready to move on yet. So I so I've thought. But um, I also gained enough trust in the medicine to follow, that, sure. to follow that guidance. So I said, well, okay, where do I go from here? And uh, you, you took the words right out of my mouth, Aubrey. It was really a message that uh, you need to meet my kindred spirit mm-hmm. from uh, the southern hemisphere and begin to work, work with him uh, he's a lot like me, but he'll teach you some things that I haven't taught you yet so that's when I began to work with whatsuma and I started in a very uh, uh unsophisticated manner in terms of uh preparation of the medicine and so on the first uh period of time i was well when I worked with peyote i I always ate peyote raw i didn't uh I didn't make a tea uh, I suffered the extreme yeah. bitterness and and the um, often distress. extreme purging that that yeah. accompanied that with peyote, uh, so I, I start decided to take the same approach with wachuma. So I, uh, <clears throat> in my early work with wachuma, I was just uh, cutting it up in strips and eating the raw cactus. Come a long way. And um, um, f- having experiences, uh, connect connecting experiences very similar to those that I'd. Uh, had with peyote, but also distinctly different. You know, the personality of the two plants is is quite evident to one once you have an opportunity for a comparison. And I hold both in in uh, the highest reverence, but um, uh, I, I I see them as as distinctive as well.
0: I think you described one time when we were out at Spirit Quest. You said they'll both hit you over the head like a like a gentle father, but peyote. Feels more like a hammer, and Machuma feels more like a feather.
1: Yeah, but it's a heavy feather. (laughs) It's a heavy feather. I felt (laughs) the heavy feather. We
0: were reminiscing on that before. Yeah,
1: and of course, as you as you know, everything I I learned from that point forward about uh, not just how to uh, well two two basic areas. One is how to uh, refine and prepare the medicine to its fullest to to realize its fullest potential. And uh, that didn't come to me overnight either. I felt like I was being given uh, knowledge and uh, guidance uh, to implement at the stage or level that I was at at that time. And as I advanced, I was given more information and I was able to uh, refine the medicine a little more, uh, increase its efficacy in certain areas. And at the same time, learn how to uh, uh, properly administer it and guide guide the uh, energy with people who had less experience with it and um, that's been pretty much my guiding principle from that point forward mm-hmm. uh, so I I, um, uh, I had at, at that point of transition I had about a hundred live peyote plants in cultivation uh, <clears throat> at my home in Georgia mm-hmm. and um, it was very very guarded and who knew about that because that was like a major felony at Mm -hmm. that time in that uh, particular situation and i didn't want to have to deal with the legal implications of that but when the time came i got the message i began to uh, divest my peyote to to people who had worked with me with it who i felt had had uh, gained the same reverence and and uh, serious attitude toward it and who would uh, either use it well or hold it as a um, as a totem, you know, as a live plant. At one time, I had a what I called a grandfather peyote that was about uh, seven inches in diameter, wow. which is really big. Big, big button. And at another time, I had a cluster that uh, were all had all grown from a single peyote root that had been cut by somebody who'd collected the the button generations earlier. And um, peyote has a way of regenerating around the edge. And producing little what we call pups and as you know if it's just left alone for a sufficient period of time it grows into a huge cluster of plants and that cluster was probably 75 to 100 years old because every every peyote in the cluster was three or four inches in diameter mm. and there must have been 15 or 20 buttons on that cluster so that was quite a quite a magnificent plant Um but then I made the transition to work with um, with Wachuma. During that period, I was also doing some work with mushrooms, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much along the same same lines. Um, I learned about the I learned the story of um, uh, R. Gordon Wasson and Maria Sabina early on in that learning process, and um, my my approach has always been to do the the background research in terms of culture. Anthropology, kind of as a ground-setting process, to to kind of launch from that base rather than try to just uh, wing it entirely. Yeah. Uh, in a, in a modern context, because as as we've seen, a lot of times people don't really know what to do with it, uh, and and uh, sometimes you can steer off in the wrong direction.
0: So you had so you started exper- experiencing the Huachuma cactus, the San Pedro cactus. Mm-hmm. And the roots of that, you know, the deepest roots of that go back to Chavin. Well,
1: so then- well, the deepest traceable roots, undoubtedly, the use of Wachuma is much older than Chavin. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we lose track of the of the uh, history at that point simply because it's not recorded uh, in either art or uh, or other uh, preservable media. Um, so, um, Chavin was a um, a culture of consciousness that, ironically, even though it was uh, founded and centered in the central Andes, uh, pretty much the very center of the Andean corridor, if you consider that the Andean corridor begins in southern Colombia and goes all the way down to Chile, Chavin's located, if you look at the map and the topography, just about in the middle of that, of the Andean Uh, Quarter Um, So Chavin was founded and established there, but the founders of Chavin quite clearly came from the Amazon Which is somewhat of an enigma somewhat of a uh, an anachronism in a way because one would naturally assume that uh, The the oldest knowledge of Wachuma which and that may well be true uh, but the uh, one would assume that the foundership would have would have uh, been established by people of the Andes, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but when we look at the um, the evidence of of um, cultural influences at Chavín, the earliest influences, based on the earliest art uh, produced, clearly shows a very strong connection to the Amazon.
0: Images of the anaconda, images of things that don't exist.
1: And images of things that do not occur in the Andes and what, or, what or time, on the
0: coast. What time period are we talking here, just to give we're, people context? We're
1: we're, we're we're looking at a founding period of around uh, 1500 B.C., 1500 B.C. Um, during the time I've been uh, working at Charlene and taking people on pilgrimages there over the last 20 years, uh, the... Um, age of the of the of the temple site has been pushed back three or four hundred years based on continuing archaeological work there so uh i think probably the the founding period for chavin is probably closer to 2000 bc um once they once they dig down to the base wherever Mm -hmm. that is you know they kind of unearth a layer and study that Mm -hmm. dig a little deeper oh there's something underneath this so you know um it's really probably premature to, to, to make a fixed statement on the antiquity of Chavin at this point. But the, um, the earliest manifestations of the temple development seem to be around uh, uh, 1500 BC or so.
0: And explain the, the concept of how medicine was woven through. You called it a culture of consciousness. Explain how the Wachuma ceremony was kind of central to the idea of this culture of consciousness.
1: Well, if, if this idea that Chavin was originally founded by people from the Amazon is true, I believe it is, uh, people coming from the Amazon would have had a very well-established and, and long-established relationship with, uh, with teacher plants, specifically ayahuasca. There's no evidence ayahuasca was ever used at Chavin, but, but uh, by extension, there seems to be a connection between the, uh, the plant medicine knowledge uh, of the Amazon and the plant medicine knowledge of the of the Andes and coast, and um, <clears throat> it may well be that um, those early pilgrims from the Amazon ventured up into the upper Andes, most likely uh, seeking the source of the great river that was very likely uh, uh, discovered by a form of pilgrimage in and of itself, where people got together and and uh, said, "You know." Let, let's let's find out where the great river comes from. The great river, the great Amazon, is uh, <clears throat> supremely sacred to the people of the Amazon, mm-hmm. in a traditional sense. So, uh, <clears throat> if that river is sacred and gives life to so so verdantly here in the Amazon, it must be connected to something really sacred at its source.
0: That's a reasonable question to ask. <laughs> so, <laughs> so
1: so following following the river, following the backtrack. Uh, interestingly, if one does that, you follow from the Amazon. You go up uh, to where two rivers connect, uh, nominally connect, uh, to form what we now call the Amazon. But in reality, the real Marañón is the true headwaters of the Amazon. That's actually the same river as it descends into the highlands. So, if we follow the Amazon to the point where the Rio Ucayali and the uh, uh, Marañón join, then follow the Marañón further up. The Marañón eventually becomes the Rio Mosna, which is one of the two rivers which form the, the uh, juncture, which form a juncture where the um, Chavin Temple is located. Mm-hmm. So from Chavin, you could hop on the, the river going downhill from that point, and eventually you'd wind up in, uh, well, back home. in the Amazon. We'd, I'd wind up in the Quito's, right back <laughs> oh, home, wow. yeah. so. Um, understanding the more esoteric motivations that people of that time would likely have had uh, just as people of our time uh, are having more and more you know a desire to find that that deep spiritual connection uh, not only through the physical aspects of nature but also the uh, the uh, spiritual energy inherent in nature one of the things that
0: you know people talk about with ayahuasca is ayahuasca is. uh, a bridge to communicate with all other plants they call it you know like one of the master teachers and one of the ways that that teaches is it teaches you about the plants do you think it's feasible that the people traveling from the amazon brought ayahuasca got some guidance about this cactus like hey let's play with it let's see what this cactus is all about there's a strong spirit here yeah and then they started to develop the wachuma practice and started to learn you know
1: well I think I think that may well have been a, a major part of the uh, motivation, the inspiration to make this pilgrimage to find the source of the great river. Mm-hmm. You know. And so um I think that probably when when the people from the Amazon made it made it up there they found um people already living in the Andes living in um, essentially um non-centralized hunter-gatherer cultures. Uh, highly nomadic in nature, no fixed locations. Um, to be a hunter-gatherer, you have to be uh, flexible and mobile. You can't just live in one place. There are very few places that can can sustain hunting and gathering in that local area for for a long period of time. So people had to move around. The Andean people had to follow the herds of of llamas and alpacas. That's what they were hunting mainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, so that was an obstacle to the establishment of uh, and construction of temple sites, for example. Uh, during that, the pre-Chavine period people were using natural formations that they uh, found, where they found sacred energy, uh, very much like the uh, the vortices here around Sedona. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Native people here didn't alter those significantly. They might have Stacked some rocks here and there or created, uh, you know, what you might call primitive altars and the like, but uh, But by and large they they used them as they were Um, But there was something some catalyst that arrived with the uh, this new influence from the From the lower world as it were so we think of the the Amazon in relation to the Andes as the lower world uh, the middle elevations of the middle world, and the upper elevations of the Andes are the upper world. So we find the three shamanic worlds inherent in the geophysiology of of, uh, of Peru, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that undoubtedly fueled the uh, uh, development of those spiritual concepts as being more than simply material formations, but actually having energetic distinctions that were were uh, interactive and and mutually complementary. So. <clears throat> um, once arriving there, they found people, probably already using uh, Wajima, uh in a in a uh, relatively unsophisticated way, uh, or maybe like you started. Probably so. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think probably everybody started following, following that same that yeah. same trajectory, and then there was a period of refinement, um, probably refinement in uh, making the medicine, and that may have well have been influenced by the technologies that were. Brought up from the lowlands that had already been developed in, in uh, the preparation of ayahuasca, uh,
0: and that's the you know the boiling the you know boiling down the refining same the actual, way we um, would...
1: the actual preparation of what we would call a tea. Yeah, um, in the case of uh, wachuma, undoubtedly the first use of wachuma was was uh, simply the 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 sole plant uh, with nothing added to it. There are a number of admixture plants that, that can be combined with wachuma uh, to alter the effect, just as, as uh, we see with ayahuasca. But, um, and actually with ayahuasca, you know, a lot of people think that um, it's mandatory that two or more plants be combined to make the ayahuasca medicine, but the original ayahuasca medicine was just the vine. The uh, admixture plants, the companion plants came later. And they were probably uh, given to people through the vine, through the uh, expanded knowledge and, and energetic perceptions that, uh, that the ayahuasca vine afforded. But that's another story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, similar things, though, have happened with, uh, with Wachuma as well. And um, in the art of Chavin, at Chavin, um, there are numerous clues to that. Um, I've already mentioned three of the, the uh, classic uh, examples of, of uh, Chavin spiritual art, the Lanzon, the uh, Estela Raimondi, uh, the uh, image that we, we talked about, the transforming image of the Wachumero, the, uh, or the Wachuma shaman, uh, holding the Wachuma leading the ceremonial procession. Actually, in the stone lithographic art at Chavin, we can read um, in pretty fine detail the specifics and details of the uh, of the original Wachuma Mesada ceremonies, and um, that has been my primary guide in in uh, forming my idea of the uh, the original ceremonial construct. You know the interpretive meaning of all the uh, components of it, and much of that, of course, has been carried over in the uh, contemporary san pedro practice but along the way uh, all these practices tend to pick up random influences that that uh, come into the picture you know yeah, over time you know. so
0: bring us paint us a picture of the height of Chavin and this ceremony being conducted in Chavin, what it looked like who was arriving mm-hmm. you know how it was administered and what the effects were to the yeah. to the locale
1: well uh let me preface that by commenting on the, the um, uh, time frame of development of the temple, because it, it, it's relevant to that question. Uh, the new temple was built, as I say, or, or begun at least, uh, around 1500 B.C. At about the 400-year mark, after 400 years of service as the old temple complex, a new temple Uh, dimension or or annex I guess is the best way to describe it was was built that that was constructed over another three or four hundred years so there are two phases to the Chavin temple one's called the old temple the other other phase is called the new temple the new temple was I think rather clearly built in response to the uh, uh, rapidly growing numbers of pilgrims coming to Chavin to uh, Receive the medicine, to receive the message, to receive that that experience of unification, transformation, and ascension, which are the the three principal components of the Chaving experience.
0: Start with the two lane road, and when the traffic gets big, you build a four lane highway.
1: Exactly, yeah, and that's pretty much what they did. Um, <clears throat> so, um, but obviously, chavin became um, a major cultural phenomenon rather quickly. You know, um, I would say within three or 400 years of its uh, uh, initiation, people were already coming from uh, distant places in the uh, Andean Amazonian uh, coastal complex, Um, and this is evidenced by the offerings, by the uh, things that people had brought to, Mm -hmm. to leave as offerings at the temple. Uh, some as far as four or five hundred miles away and in the modern time you know four four or five hundred miles is a good distance even now but uh, when you're doing it all on foot over hill and dale and we're not talking hills we're talking major mountains and steep difficult terrain uh, without the benefit of uh, beasts of burden as it were uh, you know uh, the domestication of the llamas and alpacas occurred during the Chavin period after Chavin began and in fact, was a product of Chavin In reality, as part of that uh, uh, expansion of consciousness and uh, people realizing that um, there was a lot more benefit to be had uh, by uh, capturing some of these animals and domesticating them and having sustained resource uh, from them, as opposed to all the energy required to chase them over the them uh, mountains to, to hunt them and get get a one-time, essentially a one-time benefit from them the same happened with the agriculture as well so uh well
0: there's a good you know to making that pilgrimage it's it's a lot easier to make that pilgrimage when you got magic at the other end of the pilgrimage and that's the word that comes back people come back and like hey you should go i don't care how hard that journey is it's (laughs) totally worth it totally worth it
1: that that that's undoubtedly what happened very quickly but one has but but that teases the question uh, how did the first ones who came know, and what was their motivation? Because in the early going, before that word-of-mouth uh, passage uh, really kicked in, the the first pilgrim was who who came to Chavin um, had no one to tell him that, you know, no human to tell him that. So how did they know? That brings us back to this phenomenon, this mystical phenomenon we call the calling, referred to as a calling. Mm-hmm which I think was at work then just as it is now. Because <clears throat> I'm seeing the same thing in people, even though we have uh, electronic media and the internet and uh, a much, uh, much faster network for communication in the modern day, a lot of people still come to, uh, are being drawn to, to work with these plants based on something that's uh, calling from within, not right. necessarily from out. They get the calling from within, then they start looking for the connection. And that's what, the, of course, that's what they find through the, the modern media and the, the modern network. Um, but um, by all evidence, um, at the peak of Chavín and the, the Chavín period lasted for about a thousand years, much longer than any other uh, single culture in South America, as far as I know. <coughs> Uh, there are cultural lineages that are Islam, but but they uh, underwent a lot of changes in the course of that. And the majority, the uh, particularly uh, empire-oriented cultures, only lasted three or four hundred years. They ran their course much quicker. Well, you make a it's lot just, of
0: enemies when you're ruling the empire by sword. You make a lot of friends when you're ruling the empire by heart, opening, right. crown, blasting, connection to all oneness, love, nature around you. It's a different type of conquest.
1: <laughs> and that and that's what uh, that's what the focus was at javin and you've uh, said
0: before that there's isn't really evidence of a lot of military action war and fortresses and these things being built at that time it was almost like this consciousness dropped into that area and kind of quelled what you find universally throughout that time period which right. is constant strife and constant constant,
1: constant adversary competition for uh, territory you know the the territorial imperative is, is present in human nature as it mm-hmm. is in, in uh, other animals. Uh, but there was something uh, that took hold about that time that uh, changed the whole tenor of, of human culture. Um, what you just mentioned, I think, is, is perhaps the most important aspect of that was um, an obvious cessation of human conflict. Uh, and that can be... Uh, well demonstrated by the archaeological record there 's a good factual base for that conclusion. Uh, absence of uh, implements of war, warfare, weaponry, and so forth. there were uh, objects used for hunting, you know uh, arrow points, and things of that nature but uh, things that were obviously used in in human conflict are just not not found in in uh, the archaeology of that period from about uh, 1500 BC until really the turn of the millennium remarkable
0: I mean you you don't find that hardly anywhere in the world no and there's other there's other sacred sites where people were going and probably consuming psychedelic beverages or mm-hmm. not beverages but you know uh sacraments, sacraments like at yeah. Delphi you yeah. know where they yeah. had a brew called kikion which they think might have been some lysergic acid or ergot mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. um based brew but there was I mean the Greeks and the Romans they were they were conquering everything and it wasn't a very serotonergic heart opening unifying thing to this degree or at least it was something was different about that site and that center and the culture and the times but i also think it has a lot to do with the medicine i mean wachuma itself is a medicine that beyond all other medicines bonds you with the people around you no question. when you go to no that question. experience yeah. at spirit quest and have wachuma, everybody you go through that with <laughs> is your best fucking friend and it and it lasts for a while i mean because you see each other's souls and you open yourself up to see the truth of who everybody is around you and when you see the truth of everybody around you you can't help but fall in love you know because as you see with love and then you see the shadow you see all that but you also see a different perspective and it's this it's a really unique aspect of this medicine that i think is unique and makes it you know as you said one of the great master teachers of our world
1: uh, the bonding qualities are unsurpassed. There may be other things that produce that same effect, but there's something about uh, wachuma, I think, in particular, that 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 um, I think surpasses even that of, of ayahuasca in that particular context. Probably, in part, because of the uh, the uh, more um, intensive external interactivity afforded by it you know, the uh, human interactivity as well as the interaction with nature. Mm-hmm. And the bonding effect um, was undoubtedly the uh, the key factor in this uh, cessation of, of violent inter- uh, interactions that uh, is evidenced by the archeological record. Yeah. And um, people finding better uses of their time and energy and um, I think probably receiving um, guidance through mystical channels that had not come to them up to that point through intellectual channels. Yeah, because we see such a burst of uh, of creativity. You know, one of the most obvious uh, uh, manifestations is is simply in the art itself and the technology of this lithographic art. The Chavin art is uh, uh, unlike uh, the art of the Inca, which is mainly Uh, revolves around stone cutting and stone setting and formation and there's communication in in the way that's done as well but uh, the Chavin were developing lithographic techniques that cannot be matched even today in terms of etching very fine lines without cracking the edges and extremely hard granite which which is prone to chipping Mm. and fragmentation and uh, there are a number of theories on on how they were doing that. One of which involves the use of certain uh, plant secretions to uh, soften uh, the. perhaps soften the the stone or or make it less prone to chipping or whatever. But and the other thing is, and uh, we don't find a um, an abundance of. Uh, Pieces that were started and a mistake was made, so they throw that out and start again. All the classic pieces are one of a kind, and they got it right the first time. <laughs> and yep. the the, the uh, richness of detail and the uh, richness of messaging embedded in the in the art itself, which is not complicated but very profound. And it's just as we were, they were using saying some, the other day, they
0: were using some using some PEDs, some performance enhancing art. <laughs> Uh, instruments no no question and they they were coming
1: up with these techniques that hadn't existed before you know so that um, begs the question not just how how are they doing this but how are they conceiving of the the uh, uh, the ideas that they were literally expressing in in stone
0: So take us through you know take us through the wachuma experience and and for those of you who've let me just put this caveat out there for those of you who've had san pedro or maybe experienced it i've done that too and i've had you know brews from various different sources and and preparations that were you know ostensibly locally you know described as good you know some good san pedro Mm -hmm. but i've just relegated all of that to the category (laughs) non-howard and relegated (laughs) what you serve as don howard and and that's there's just such a difference between what you're providing and and when you describe it when you describe it as a lifetime in a day
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that's an experience that I think is really really unique to wachuma is how different each of the phases of this experience are from that opening expansion which can go into hilarity or can go into these you know laughter and and giggles and talkativeness to this deep solemn connection and of course your ceremony we'll talk about that too helps guide it that way Mm -hmm. but it's this whole you know the ecstasy of birth and giggling and squealing and squeaking and laughing and and into this you know deep connection with uh like an old heavy wisdom you know as it comes on through the night so take us through what this you know what this medicine is doing what is this lifetime that you live when you when you drink
1: the cup Well, as I've often, as I've often said, um, Wachuma has seven movements. There are seven movements of the medicine in any given encounter with it. And not everybody is sensitive enough to detect the shifts that occur at each of those points, at each of those seven points. <clears throat> but uh, as one gains experience, you begin to notice the subtleties more clearly. And, uh, there's a learning curve with it, really. You know, nobody gets it all in one pass, which is true of most things, and certainly not in this case. Um, the principal phases in the uh, movement of, of the uh, energy of Wachuma after one consumes it, well, actually the, uh, the first step in that process is a cleansing and purification, which uh, can be accomplished in, in uh, various ways. Uh, I use sacred tobacco, as uh, has been done for hundreds, of, if not thousands of years as well, as, a, as an adjunct tool in that process. Um, tobacco has the quality of cleansing and clearing energy and moving energy and opening the energy centers. So um, <clears throat> the first thing I do in, in ceremony is to uh, clear a person's energy using the, the energy of tobacco, and uh, a mild hypnotic state induced by the sound of my maracas which uh, is uh produces a trance rhythm which uh, has a subtle hypnotic effect to create an opening at the very beginning so that people can receive the energy of this with this little um, prejudice or preconceived uh, idea of what it's going to be like as possible uh, <clears throat> I like to work with people as a clean slate, mm-hmm. as it were, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> try to try to dispel any uh, expectations, whether they are accurate or otherwise, because uh, the medicines don't always conform to our expectations, as we know. And uh, then it's a matter of, of uh, bring, uh, administering the medicine and doing that in a way that imparts a uh, sacredness to the process. and. Uh, all of this of course is cultivating the set the classic set which is the uh the attitude and um motivation refining that attitude and motivation as much as possible the medicine's going to do that even more as as people get into it and um and then uh, give people the drink and then uh repeat that that um same procedure with everybody participating in the ceremony. And, um, and then we usually have about a 30 minute waiting period where we just uh, will we'll clo- close that phase of the ceremony. I, I, I do the Mesada ceremonies in three phases. The opening phase is the uh, induction, the um, <clears throat> awakening of the energy of the arts on the Mesa. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, but also awakening the energy the deeper energy of, of each subject attending the mesa in terms of, of uh, trying to focus their orientation on on uh, the things that really matter and kind of clearing their mind and and thoughts of from uh, trivial trivial things and then we go into the uh, the second phase of the mesada which is the uh, connection with nature mm-hmm. and at that point we leave the mesa we go uh, uh, to different places, depending on, on the, uh, the general venue where we're working, uh, to allow people the opportunity to find their, their personal connection with the energy of nature at that place. We usually have a cultural connection as well, where we will have some interaction with indigenous people, uh, which has enormous therapeutic benefit for people coming from Western lifestyle and background, uh, where, to a certain degree, a lot of people lose their um. The more human elements of their their human relationships, you know, yeah. becomes begins to become a little obscured by the uh, uh, the social expectations or what have you. So um, so that has a uh, an important role in that process. So for those yeah. of you who are trying to
0: follow along, you know, this is when you when you take Wachuma, you know, <clears throat> it is an overwhelmingly strong force that that comes up and you know kind of consumes you at that point point. and this is not a subtle this is not a subtle feeling <laughs> when you take wachuma you know like whereas ayahuasca can sometimes be very very subtle true and with wachuma it's more regularly this heart mind expansive blasting open where you really know you just you're on a different you're on a different ride at this point you know and but that being said the real magic comes from really paying attention to the subtleties because it's a it's a different whereas ayahuasca will take you and kind of lead you by the hand and it's just your decision whether you want to protest and get dragged by your ear or whether you mm-hmm. want to walk with mama through mm-hmm. the shadows and wherever you're going to go you know she's taking you no matter what this is more of a love that grandfather energy, like. Here's your playground, son. Like, where do you want to go? What do you want to explore? Do you want to go there? This you is, can if you want.
1: This is your opportunity. This is your it chance. It opens opportunity, right? So opens. the medicine
0: is always there, present, strong. You feel it, but then it's up to you on how you want to navigate it, which way you want to take it. How close can you pay attention to these things that are rising in your psyche and track them to the root and then overcome them or not overcome them? And I, you know, I talk a lot about these little challenges and tests, you know, in a lot of my uh, I have a written you know, work on Wachuma Masada and, that, and then of course the documentary as well. But it's this interesting mix of an overwhelmingly powerful, incredible feeling, but also the magic coming in really paying attention, like really paying attention to the subtlety and then using, as you said at first, nature as your teacher and then contact with other individuals who come from a different background and each other, the, the group dynamic yeah. and then eventually steering you back for those kind of final phases to the magic of the mesa which where it really you know comes into full effect and you start to understand you know that there's as you always say more than more than what's in the cup Mm -hmm. and you start layering in this kind of process this ability to galvanize and harness energy and balance it in a way that's absolutely palpable around this construct so so take us through this construct of, of the Mesa. What is the Mesa, what is it doing?
1: Well, one of the fundamental aspects of wachuma is, uh, or qualities, is the, uh, that it sensitizes you to energy. You become more, more sensitive to energy, in general. Um, and there are many levels of that. Uh, one level is just becoming more sensitive to your own energy. <coughs> The other is the uh, the energy of of the setting you're in, the physical setting, um, which is why that's so important. You're gonna you're gonna find a very strong connection with that energy, whether it's positive or negative energy. You're you're gonna feel it more profoundly. You're gonna um, you're gonna be more affect more dramatically affected by it. Um, <clears throat> the mesa... It has been described by some as among the most profound spiritual practices ever conceived by human beings. That's a bold statement. <laughs> and of course, people who embrace other spiritual paths would, in many cases, take exception to that, uh, which is why I, I don't say it is the most profound spiritual practice, but I do believe it is among among those. Uh, obviously, the, um, the qualities of the Wachuma medicine are uh, are integral to that, but as one gains connection with the processes of the MESA um, practice, uh, you begin to develop a keener sensitivity to that energy without, even without taking the medicine. Over time, one can develop the same sensitivity to uh, energy that the, um, the novice or beginner discovers with what over time you can begin to form that connection even without the medicine
0: aldous huxley described psychedelic experiences as opening the blinds you know to the doors of perception basically like it's not about adding something in it's showing you what's already there and kind of opening yourself to tuning into it absolutely and you get shown that way with the medicine the first time what may blast the doors wide open and you get to see it but you can learn through choice and through patience and sensitivity to open those blinds yourself you know and that's you know really what you're talking about is and that
1: really should be everyone's ultimate that's the goal. objective right you now uh, <clears throat> obviously this obviously these plant-based technologies are not the only way to access these realms of consciousness uh, if they were these realms of consciousness would only exist in the at least or, or originally exist only in places where these plants occur
0: we had talks about how the sun dance was that way of you know deprivation and ecstatic dance absolutely and pain absolutely. and yeah. you know dehydration all these things come into effect to create those ecstatic states and there's so many different ways you know and, but the plants just have their own they have their own wisdom about them they have their own thing that layers in you know whereas if you're using the air in your body in itself you're kind of tapping into these other forces where these plants seem to have like a personality as well so it's like you're being guided into these states but you're also communicating with an intelligence that's and seems beyond be your own beyond your own capacity oh, sorry, you know, another so you know another shaman hamilton souther that i work with just said that he likes to conceive these plants as beings of such great evolution and such great intelligence that to incarnate in human form wouldn't even make sense because right. they're that they're, would be a step down <laughs> yeah, exactly because <laughs> they're steadily applying and holding that knowledge humans are you know, capable of great things but they're also dealing with these struggles and you know mm-hmm. lessons and learning and, and failing and falling and getting up and you know brushing the dust off you know these plants have already been there through that right. and they're just there as a, a steady guide and almost a guide that's you know really still preserving free will you know there's nothing that dictates that you take these plants are going to be a good person these plants are just available saying hello human i'm here to show you some things what do you want to do with it Mm -hmm.
1: what you you do with it is your own choice what you do
0: with it is your own choice and that's i think an important lesson for people as well there's this is not the game is choice and will and even these highly evolved plant teachers still preserve that and it's still up to the intention of the people taking it as to which way they want to guide this thing
1: yeah a lot of people think when they work with the plant medicines that uh if i take if I, if i work with this plant or i take this medicine this is going this and this alone is going to make me a better person and uh i i i work with people all the time who come with that initially come with that idea and uh it's based on uh what they've heard they've heard about the good results but they but often they don't hear about the hard work that that uh goes with the you know goes with the plant in order to produce those results Mm -hmm. you know that the that each individual has to do
0: so the mesa is just to wrap this thought up the mesa is a it's actual physical construct and in that physical construct you know describe like how that is used as a force to kind of balance the energies and how with your intention behind it Mm -hmm. it's used to help you know influence the the ability for people to connect to their higher self and their you know whatever they want so how is how is this set up and how is it, how is it utilized in the, in the best form?
1: Well, there are different levels at which one can work the Mesa. Uh, the lowest level at which the Mesa can be worked um, is also the lowest level at which one can work with any of these plants, and that is at the level of magic. And in this, in this sense, I'm speaking of magic as a, um, as a, um, as a tool of power mm-hmm. at one, for one purpose or another. And this is not to make a judgment about the nature of power. Uh, it does, however, speak to the nature of, of uh, human beings and the human ego and what uh, the human ego often does in the presence of power, how it responds to those, uh, those influences, for better or for worse. You know, It's not always negative, it's not always positive either. So uh, that comes back again to, to uh, a person's basic nature as a human being, their basic um, human qualities and um, what, what their real core intention for their life is. I define intention as um, a mission statement for one's life. Now different people in this work define intention in different ways. Uh, but I teach people two pieces to forming their relationship with the plants. The first is the uh, presentation of an offering, which is your uh, which I consider to be your intention, which is a, statement, is a succinct mission statement for your life. It's amazing how, how, how few people have actually stopped to think about that at any point in their life until they're challenged to, to do that. And then often they, well, I don't know, what is my intention? What is my mission statement? They know what they want in life, but that doesn't necessarily correspond to a mission.
0: That was actually you know, somewhat me you know i was always called to to a certain degree to service but it didn't really crystallize until i met you and met that and saw an example that you summed up in some very short words that weren't a language of my own para el bien de todos for the good of all Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and that seeing you embody that and going like oh yeah (laughs) that sounds about right you know and those words have been on my lips since that point and i've You know varied from my own egoic pursuits to genuine service and but i've always i've always known that when those words first came out of your mouth and i heard them and understood and felt them with the Wachuma, and felt the Mm -hmm. people around me and felt the Mm -hmm. earth talk to the mother you know with tears streaming down my eyes hey mama you know how can i help and had her talk to me and said you know just help the people son yeah like help the people and
1: that's a life changer it changed everything yeah
0: you know it changed everything it, it really showed me where my intention really lay mm-hmm. and and it's just it was incontrovertible at that point and as as i may wander and as i may pursue you know something for my own gain there's that deeper deeper calling that i can never ignore that is para bien de todos that and me i'm a part of it i'm a part of the all you know, like Absolutely. for the good we're of all. Not, we're all not part of the we're whole. We're not left out. There. We're not left out. You know, this isn't just sacrifice, you know, just destroying yourself for the good of every. You're part of it. Like elevate everybody. And as you said, to be of service, you gotta be fit for service. Yeah. And that's such an important message as well. And it is so important. But it's this that thing is like the guiding, it's like a it's like a guidepost. You know, it like forms this backbone and orientation to your entire life. That if you feel that, if you fucking feel that just once you'll never be able to say no you can't you can't go back and say no anymore it's there it's 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 deeper than your bones it's deeper than your blood it's deeper than your thoughts and psyche and desires it's it's your soul
1: it's and now and 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 in your own words just now you expressed why you explained really why Chaveen had such a dramatic influence in its time Mm-hmm. and continues to even in the modern day even though the, the reference to Chavín is even in Peru is on the grander scale largely lost you know people in that general uh, area around Chavín still uh, know something about it but even there a lot of the uh, a lot of the legacy of Chavín has been lost over time i think due to the um, pervasive uh, influences of uh, of catholicism Uh, and that's not a jab at that but uh, it's had it it certainly changed and altered it you know uh, in significant ways not all not necessarily all for the worst but uh, um, but back to the construct of the Mesa the Mesa is oriented to um, restoring balance energetic balance in the subject Uh, addressing the Mesa. The Mesa construct in the, what we call the Northern Mesa, which is the immediate um, descendant from the, uh, the Chavin construct, has three fields as we refer to them, or, or three campos. Um, the field to the, and, and this, it's, it's rather interesting that um, in practitioners of the San Pedro Mesa, the more, uh, well, the post-colonial, manifestation of it these fields were reversed in their positioning on the mesa in the original chavin construct which is based on the alignment at the, of the chavin temple itself the feminine energy is um, manifest on the left hand field as you 're facing the mesa the left hand field is the field of feminine energy <clears throat> in Andean Amazonian cosmology the uh, uh, complementary energies are referred to in a gender sense as masculine and feminine energy. Uh, the uh, feminine energy in the original construct is to the left. The feminine energy is associated with uh, positive energy dynamic, but positive in the uh, same sense as a as a uh, magnet has a positive pole. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the left the left hand field is the field of masculine energy which is associated with negative energy. Okay, so masculine energy is associated with negative energy but not negative in the sense of bad. Good, bad, yeah. We're not talking about, we're not taking it to the good, bad, good, evil confrontation at this, at this level. Uh, it can go there, but uh, in the more advanced um, uh, work, uh, we kind of take it beyond that, that uh, uh, comparison of, of good and evil. The uh, feminine energy is associated with life-giving force. Mm -hmm. The masculine energy is associated with life-taking force. But all of that um, perceived in the yin-yang concept of constant movement of energy and constant exchange, uh, a constant cycle of life, death, and rebirth uh, at a spiritual level, also at an energetic level. And um, the central field The third field is the center field, which is the field we we, uh, usually refer to as the field of justice or reconciliation. That's the place where those two energies converge. That's the line between the (laughs) yin-yang. The line between the Mm yin-yang. And that's the point of perfect balance, perfect harmony. That's the the realm of non-duality.
0: And that's right where the Lanzon sits.
1: The reconciliation of duality is the the line of, that's why it's referred to as the line of reconciliation, zone of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So uh, the construct of the Mesa recognizes several things. The construct of my Mesa basically represents the core principles and concepts in in classical shamanism. Uh, The concept of three worlds. We begin at the lower world and we uh, evolve and grow and uh, then we find ourselves, from our point of, bir- of spiritual birthing, in a perfect, in a in a state of perfect harmony, <clears throat> uh, and uh, a state of of absolute non-duality. Mm-hmm. Then we come into the human realm, the realm of the human life experience, and uh, it's here where we find our greatest uh, dilemma of reconciling duality. We're all confronted by these conflicting uh, pulls, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, however we however we uh, perceive them or however we manifest them many people uh, define those as as good and evil <clears throat> um, that's one way of seeing it but not the only way of seeing it
0: you know seen from the eyes of non-duality you know it becomes balance again right exactly you know, life must you know life must transition into death for a new life to form like it, that's the yeah. necessity of it and so, same with those forces bringing inherent chaos or bringing inherent challenge or strife or anything there that also needs to be in play for there to be the heroes to arise you know the people who can bring their energy and choose to be of service and choose to help others all of this creates this game board that ultimately is in harmony and preserves that sacred most sacred thing which is choice and will and the thing that you get to really start to feel when you become aware of these subconscious processes that are driving you constantly, you know, unbeknownst to you, and then you become more and more aware and then begin, you know, get more and more access to will, you know, to choice yeah. and understanding that for that to exist, there has to be these, these, you know, dual forces.
1: what good is choice if there are no choices exactly exactly (laughs) if everything is just a movie
0: you know it's just straight up a movie and that's so so that
1: so that addresses that addresses the uh uh, you know the basic human dilemma that every human being who's ever lived on on earth has probably uh, confronted at one level or another Uh, not everybody thinks about it equally deeply but um, i think everybody has to deal with that that uh, process so my mesa reflects that as as a um, the the um, dichotomy of duality as a as an artifact of the middle world experience. The lower world experience is the realm of our uh, refers to the realm of our spiritual birthing. Uh, where do we come from as a spirit as a conscious spiritual being? And uh, the answer to that, to me, is clear. We come from the source. And of course, then the next question is, well. What is the source, and where is that, and where did the source come from? But and we could go go on and on with that. But in the course of our human, of our trajectory as human beings, um, we come into this existence through the channel of the lower world. We um, unfold our human experience in the middle, the middle world, as we refer to it. Uh, the middle world, the world we're in right now, is just a spiritual place, as where we came from and where we're going. You know, um, a great many religious people uh, are, have, have a sense of, uh, of a spiritual destination, but they seem to have a poor sense of a spiritual now. Mm. <laughs> At least a less, less, evident, uh, less evidence of an, of an understanding of the spiritual nature of where, where we reside now. And, uh, and moreover, learning how to integrate that spiritual dimension to our, our uh, life experience as it is now, with the with material aspects of it as well. You know, being able to navigate between those two worlds. Sometimes uh, moving cleanly and purely into one or the other, and um, I think ideally, most of the time, we can learn to kind of integrate those on the go in our, in our uh, everyday life. Without um, without having to prove anything to other people by being by by uh, trappings of religiosity or, or those kinds of things, you know we don't really have anything to prove to anybody else. Um, we certainly think we
0: do sometimes.
1: No, we we often do. We certainly but think um, that
0: we have a lot of a whole list of requirements to be worthy of love and worthy right. of. Feeling our source and understanding our source and understanding yeah. where we come from we think we got to do all these external things yeah to make that happen or we got to go find ourselves or yeah. do all of these things where really it's more like excavating you know it's just removing the clouds from the sun so that you can recognize that the sun is inside you, you know,
1: and so in many your heart yeah and so many religious people talk about unconditional love and yet and yet they put all kinds of conditions on other people in terms of whether they will accept them or not, right. or whether they approve of them or not or whatever. And so a big part of this is, is uh, helping us shred that uh, judgmentalism of, of others and, uh, and uh, even go a little more lightly on ourselves, you know, in terms of being self-forgiving. When well, we when need you it. see
0: the source in everybody else, you have to see the source in yourself, too. Right, right. You know, you see it in all of these different diverse people. There'll be people yeah. from you know, Australia and Canada and Norway and people you've never met. And then you go through a ceremony like this, you see source in everybody. And, and you how grow.
1: is it that we all have so much in common and yet seemingly be so different?
0: Exactly. And then you yeah. see it in you see it in yourself. And then yeah. when you see it in yourself, more, it's this virtuous cycle that develops where you're able to do that. And it doesn't mean that you won't wander from that. and close your eyes or put on those sunglasses where you see everything as separation your ego mm-hmm. says they're different i'm better mm-hmm. they're different i'm mm-hmm. better which is what the ego loves to do but you can find your way back home again you right. know, because you've right. seen the way and the more you practice that and the more you integrate that and bring that into your life that's what creates these profound changes and that's what eases and then allows you to see those same things in yourself so you forgive yourself more easily you Love yourself more virtuously, and then you have more love to give, and you're able to receive more love because you don't worry whether you deserve it or not. Yeah. You know, so you open yourself to that, and that's what creates these longer-term transformations that people are looking for externally when really, we got it. We got it right there.
1: It's all right here. It's all right <clears throat> The nature of finding a heart-centered um, life experience as a human being, I think, is, is in our growth of, uh, of compassion and uh, understanding that no matter what we see in others that we think in, of in a negative sense, um, there's a little bit of me in that too, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, uh, there, but by, there, but for the grace of God go I, you know. Uh, we're all fortunate to be who we are and where we are, no matter where we are and who we are. Yeah, you know. So realizing that, and um, and you know. When it comes to uh, helping other people, I think probably we all do a better job of that as examples and as teachers or even uh, certainly a, uh, than as preachers and probably even as teachers a thousand percent when i
0: <clears throat> i've been t- I was trying to get my parents to experience a psychedelic journey for years do- like a dozen years, and my efforts pursuing them trying to get them to come was actually repelling them from coming and then one time after actually I came back from the wachuma masada i just went over there and it was just hanging out and eating spaghetti with the family and i just had such a vibratory change all of a sudden <laughs> they go hey where, what are you doing where'd you go and i said oh i went and experienced this it was amazing and then they're like i want to go and i was like what, what do you mean you want to go i'm trying to get <laughs> you to go for a dozen years i wasn't even i didn't even talk about it this time yeah. and then but they saw that that something significant had right. shifted. It's, it's with what they saw
1: in you that that and then, uh, and then flipped the switch for them. And then, right. for
0: those of you who haven't listened, you can listen to my podcast with Steve Shubin about his ayahuasca experience at Spirit Quest, which is one of the funniest, most classic stories you'll ever hear.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and see, you know where that led. And but absolutely, as you said, you know when you're looking, that I get so many questions. How can I help my mother? How can I help? just be be that change you know be that be that force of love where no matter what they do you look at them see the truth behind their actions see love and give forgiveness and that's the healing force and eventually they'll come to you you can't drag anybody into this path you know they have to choose it and the only way they'll choose it is if they see it and they see it embodied in you and you become that mirror and then they can say oh i can maybe see that for myself and that be, that forms the basis of genuine change
1: yeah and that's the calling that's it that's the calling because you know? that's what we want that that's wasn't what, an arm twist that was no. just a, a revelation a realization yeah.
0: yeah yeah all right so we've gone an hour and 25 minutes and we haven't yet talked about vilka and i think we, and we could go an hour 25 minutes talking about vilka but we got to touch on this this was yeah. When you look at Chavín there was two primary medicines mm-hmm. that were being employed and yes. and for everybody all the pilgrims wachuma was you know widely available and created yes. these right. massive shifts both personally and culturally that we've been discussing. Yes. And then for the providers it seemed they had their own ceremony deeper in the catacombs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more in sensory deprivation mm-hmm. where they utilized uh, a natural plant seed yeah. pod. Yeah and had a far different experience and one of the if not the most potent psychedelic experience i've ever encountered and it's called vilka which translates roughly to the sacred Mm -hmm. what is the sacred what is this thing i'm talking about here
1: well we're talking about a a tree that occurs in south america Uh, there are two species one occurring in uh, northern south america the other uh, more southerly. Um the genus is is called uh, Anadenanthera. The two species are uh, Anadenanthera peregrina in northern per- northern South America and Anadenanthera colubrina in southern South America. There's a, probably a point where the two occur in close proximity but um uh both have very very deep histories uh in South America in in sacred usage. In fact, the oldest uh, Record of the use documented record of the use of the sacred plant in South America uh, Is in fact Vilca and uh, It's based on uh, the discovery of some uh, Inhalers or snuffing tubes in a cave in the Atacama Desert in southern Chile That uh, were carbon dated to be about 5,000 years old 4,500 to 5,000 years old and they did some scrapings from from uh, the inside of these of these uh, stuffing tubes, which tested positive for 5-MeO-DMT. Uh-oh. Now, uh, it's pr- rather amazing that that would be preserved for for literally several millennia, but um, the Atacama Desert is is one of the driest places on Earth, uh, it's also very cold, so the uh, preservation conditions were probably optimal uh, to, to preserve some trace of, of what the people were were doing, and uh, so that's the oldest uh, evidence that I know of anywhere in the world of the use of of a sacred plant, based on you know the uh, tools, the equipment used, as well as actual uh, uh, traceable uh, remnants of the substance involved. Well, as you said, uh, the the word vilca comes from the Quechua. Uh, and literally means sacred. So, obviously, for a specific plant to be named, to be given that name, particularly uh, when uh, other plants of such um, magnanimous qualities like Huachuma and and Ayahuasca were also known, although not necessarily by the same cultures of the same people at the same time, but... um, it it, it it bears noting that this is the only plant that is called sacred, that has been given that name uh, uh, specifically. And I think the probable reason for that is because it affords those who are ready for the experience the opportunity to uh, actually uh, navigate the processes of full realization of the... Um, the nature of the human life experience, the understanding of the nature of death as a transition into another life experience. The afterlife has been recognized by cultures all over the world throughout time, really. And then giving people, um, again, those who are ready for it, an opportunity to experience what that is going to be like, uh, to get... um, I guess on, on the one hand, you might describe it as a preview of what's, what, what happens after you die. You not, now, not everybody, of course, takes it in that sense or perceives it in that sense, and uh, <clears throat> the, the perceptual responses can vary from um, extraordinary, visionary understanding of the, uh, the whole nature of life, death, and rebirth in a, um, in a way that is supremely transformative and uh, probably more than anything, um, alleviates any lingering fear of death mm. in a person.
0: Because you felt like you've lived it, you know. And that's why when people ask me, you know, I'll often get the question, you know, what do you think happens when you die? And to me, it's not a what do I think happens. I feel, <laughs> like I feel like I've been there, but I don't right. expect anybody to take my word for it. No. Like, please don't. You know, no. that's the, that would be a foolish act to do but you experience something like vilka which is a combination of as you mentioned five meo dmt nn dmt which brings the color and light and Mm -hmm. visionary state to Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. with the third psychedelic component bufotenine psychoactive component which brings on this kind of heavy feeling of the onset of death Mm -hmm. in and of itself Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. this almost paralyzing feeling and the combination of those with this massively intense you know visual Experience from the NNDMT with the merging with the unicity, the oneness that comes from the five meo, all mixing together creates this hour-long, forty-five minute, hour-long experience that is indescribable. So you just call it; it's ineffable to someone who hasn't experienced.
1: Ineffable it. is the only word that applies. There's no possible way that I could <laughs> no. say
0: anything that helps you describe it. I mean, it's <clears throat> to me it comes on like a like a screen of light that just pushes down slowly on my body and anything that I'm holding onto in my ego, my physical self, anything has to get squeezed out of the cheesecloth and Mm -hmm. goes down in the wash. And the only thing that remains is that part of me that actually exists now in the afterlife. And I think that's a misconception that a lot of people have. Oh, you die and then your soul leaves. I I really feel like we're there always. And that's part of the worlds that we have access to. But here in this physical opportunity, You know this this experience takes priority but it doesn't mean that we aren't always already there that's absolutely right you know and so this allows you to remove that physical priority to this material existence and experience yourself as you are in the other in the other realm and look around and not you know i spoke to my grandmother i met some interesting people i you know had a woman with a gown made of diamonds telling me to shush because i was singing a song when i When I came to full, you know, full recognition that I was back in my physical self. I mean, wild, wild experiences that are always going to be different every time. I mean, you've had hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of Vilka experiences at this point, probably hundreds. Has any been the same? Any two been exactly the
1: same? No, but the majority have followed the same sequence of events, uh, manifesting somewhat differently in many cases. Um... Probably the classic um, arrival, sense of arrival with Velka, is a a feeling of uh, of having a communication or a council with your own ancestors. The council of the ancestors mm. is, is the the classic manifestation of that, and uh, it's highly instructional. It's very warming. Um, it's a um, it's an experience that you don't want to leave and it seems like it lasts a lot longer than it does in earth time um it can seem like it goes on for hundreds of years uh, but it's that's in a uh, in a space where you have no sense of a passage of time at all it yeah. could be a minute or a thousand years you couldn't tell the difference uh, <clears throat> which teaches you something about the nature of time as right. well but the interesting thing about that that uh, aspect of it not everybody gets that experience especially the first time or two they they take velka and i think one of the reasons is a lot of people um kind of put on the brakes as they as as it as the intensity builds it reaches a point and and um uh they're just not quite ready to get to to have that final release of surrender that's really necessary to 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 make the breakthrough. We're all going to have to do that sooner or later.
0: Like Mama Ayahuasca and, leading you by the hand, it's either going to take you by the yeah. ear or you're going to walk with yeah. grace and a smile on your face, heart forward, head up, as you always say. You know, like death's coming. Yeah. So we either prepare for it and prepare to give ourselves with love and give ourselves with a wicked smile. You know, and leave this thing behind.
1: Or it's going to catch you by surprise, gonna, and you're not going to be ready. It's going to slap you upside the head. <laughs> you
0: know and that's another one of our great primary choices how are we going to deal with this inevitability that we all have yeah, yeah, how do we deal with that yeah and this
1: is like this is the training for how to deal with i that. think that i think velka is uh, kind of like training wheels for the death experience mm-hmm. and uh, and the um uh, uh, uh reinforcement of of one's courage to live life to the fullest without fear you know uh, without really worrying about what's coming, what's coming up next. We all do to a certain degree, but uh, how much does that really interfere with our appreciation of the life we're living and the, moment, the moments that we're in right now you know, by worrying too much about the future?
0: I've read that you know, 90% of our thoughts in, a waking, in our waking state have something to do with fear have something to do with mm-hmm. keeping us away from danger something to do with the social position we're in which is very linked to the fear mechanism because to survive you had to be part of a tribe so all of these social cues right. and reproductive cues you know yeah. how am i being perceived by those who i might have sex with how am i being perceived yeah. by those who can care for my tribe all of these yeah. things which have supplanted our fear of jaguars and biting spiders to the large part i mean most of what we worry about are these social dynamics mm-hmm. is is really the the biggest part of our waking life. And so we're missing out on the majority of what's available because we're locked in these fear-based patterns. And then the big fear of all though is death. And then so you start to deal with the death fear and then you can start to work your way back to your relationship fears and your social fears and your own internal fears and try to meet in the middle. And then let that when you let that go, then that's that place that everybody's been talking about you know that's that thing that everybody's which is living in the now living in the present like feeling the magic of being alive enlightenment whatever you want to call it you know that's where you get the opportunity to start working your way back from that but until you deal with that 900 pound gorilla which is death the root you know the mother of all these fears and pain which is another one but largely a lot of that comes from death yeah you know you got to deal with that one to start working your way back to a you don't have to but it's damn it's helpful <laughs> you know to, yeah. to deal with that big one first and then start saying like okay well if i'm not afraid of death am i really afraid of getting broken up with at this point and like no exactly. how deeply am i afraid of that you know
1: yeah, you resolve the big you resolve the big fear and the all the rest of them look like small stuff
0: right and they won't it sometimes because you'll your mind will project these fears and they'll blow them up and they'll look like a you know a gorilla even way bigger than death something that you would even know maybe maybe
1: even prefer death
0: to this but you may have a
1: base of reference that you can go back to 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 put that into put that back into perspective and that's
0: why you know in so many of the great teachings they talk about using death as your wisest advisor you know memento mori remember that you're going to die yeah. you know and you can use death as this teacher so when you get locked in all of these small little battles and these mind-boggling situations that you can't get out of in these funks you're like well has death touched me yet what does death say death's not here so okay well let's work back from that maybe this isn't that big a deal you know and then because death isn't this big scary thing death is fucking beautiful from everything
1: i've seen from everything i've seen and from everything i'm preparing myself for now, you know, it's not something to be feared, uh, no, afraid of. It's fucking beautiful. And
0: so you get that and you're like, all right, my destination is fucking someplace beautiful. So what do I want to do between now and then? I don't know. Para bien de todos. Make
1: the most of what, yeah. make the most of the opportunities Hell at yeah. hand, Hell you know, yeah. is what you got to do. Live. Just fucking <laughs> and, live. And, and do it full on and unfettered, you know, without, uh, because once you, once you shed a lot of that fear, uh, you're free to take um well considered risks, you know, and as we know uh if you're not willing to take any risks in life, you're not going to get very far right um, and uh it's a good idea to you know uh calculate those risks to a certain degree, but uh I wouldn't be who I am and where I am today doing what i do if i if I hadn't been willing to walk the plank and step off into the unknown, not knowing where I was gonna land or if if i was going to land at all and um trust you know uh, a lot of it comes down it comes really comes comes back to to being able we, to trust unconditional we kinda, trust we kind of
0: know we kind of know what we're called for but yeah. we turn a deaf ear to that calling you know and and like you said you had the choice when when peyote told you you know come meet my brother yeah Wachuma, you had the choice to say no 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 thanks I'll I'll stick with you (laughs) I'll stick with you and we always have that choice to stay stay where it's safe stay Stay with what you know stay with what you know yeah you know and there's that fear voice that'll tell you that but we we have the opportunity to also to listen to that calling and and really when you start to trust that that calling is coming from you know coming from a place way wiser than you exactly and then you start to listen then you realize that you this isn't just random and you just have to listen and have fucking courage have the courage to leave into the unknown to trust fall into this next chapter and then that's where the real interesting powerful magic experiences happen when you leave the cozy shores of comfort and the cozy shores of what's known and have that pioneering spirit and go out into those waters that seem you know unknown and murky and fearful and dangerous and and not even not in the literal sense i'm not saying like wantonly risk your life but follow that calling to who you really are follow that calling to what you're here to do what magic you're here to experience what medicine you're here to provide what your what your purpose and mission here is in life yeah. and that's going to take fucking courage
1: it definitely takes courage i think it's important for people to, to realize and I, I could be wrong about this but i've always felt that we don't grow from our center we grow around the edges and so uh you know you got to kind of be out on the edge a little bit and push the envelope a little bit in order to accelerate that growth process and
0: sometimes you're going to step over sometimes
1: you're going to go well, a little yeah. too far and that's, you're going to get hurt that's where you get a little burned you, <laughs> you know? get a little burned and that's okay too you know well, it's a, that's that's an experience you know yeah. i remember the first time i got burned i touched the stove well i that hurt i didn't touch the stove again like yeah. that you know i always felt it close before i touched it but um yeah th- these are all parts of our uh, i think of everybody's process, if they, uh, if they have the courage to undertake it. But trust and courage are, are, are core to the process. What I tell everybody before I administer the Velka, uh, and I do it again in the uh, in, in what is quite evidently the, uh, the Chavin style, which is to prepare people first with Wachuma on a step-by-step basis. That's the last process in the initiation I do. Uh, it's it's a part of the uh, I call it an infra ceremony in the third mesada, and um, there are always uh, I don't know probably five to ten percent of the people present in that uh, work that um, elect not to take it, and in some cases that's the main thing they came for. Mm-hmm. But they get up to that pro- up to that point up to that process, and for various reasons they decide they're not ready. And that's, uh, that's a serious, it's a, it's a moment of truth. It's a serious decision to make. There's no right or wrong answer to it. Um, there are also people who um, are intrepid psychonauts who uh, uh, aren't sure they're ready but push on anyway. And uh, when they do, everybody gets something out of it, but um, not everybody gets the fullest benefit from it either. Uh, at least in the in the in the first experience of it, I think probably at Chavin, it was something that was experienced by most people there just one time in their lives. Mm. I could be wrong, but um, it, it certainly was not um, was not done as frequently or as uh, broadly as as uh, Wachuma was taken. Wachuma yeah. was given to virtually every pilgrim who came to Chavin. That was the the central sacrament of, of Chavin. It appears the, that Vilca was. Uh, Uh, probably more or less uh, restricted to uh, a final initiation for those who were going to stay, who felt the calling to stay in service to the the future pilgrims who were gonna come, which was a small percentage of of the the masses who came. Most went back to where they came from, and and in some cases um, felt the call to service on more on the local level. That's how the, the Mesa practice spread, you know. But yeah. that all began at chavin Chavine is is unquestionably the mother of the mesa as we as we uh see it today as the as the the northern mesa it's called in peru now
0: well, this is officially the longest podcast, but I have to and I'm fucking loving it and the, and I know people probably don't want this to end, but we're gonna wrap it up but I want one final thought you know to explore as we wrap up mm-hmm. you've lived quite a few years 70 and a half been a lot of changes happen <laughs> mm-hmm. you've been a part of a catalyst for changes in a lot of different individuals when you look out at the world you know do you hold a sense of optimism that you know Chavine could rise again and medicines could play a part in the awakening of people and and a new cultural legos and ethos and and spirit could set into our world that transcends borders and transcends separation and and brings about a new a new way of living for people in the planet.
1: Well, it comes down to unification, transformation, and ascendancy. And uh, what worked three thousand years ago with people just like us in every human sense uh, surely would work again. And and I I believe is at work again. I think it's important that we. Exercise um, good judgment and and really advance this from our heart space as much as we can, uh, so that people will engage it in that way. You know, um, para el bien de todos, for the good of all. You know, if we can really instill that that concept uh, broadly. In the global human family, as 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 that is beginning to become more connected to uh, the means that we now have in the modern world, I think there's tremendous potential for positive change in the world. Uh, everybody's not going to become a, a convert to, to this way of thinking and living, but uh, it doesn't take 100 percent. I don't think it was 100 percent of the people in the in the in the day of the heyday of Chavine either. Mm-hmm. Um, you try to create that uh, critical mass of consciousness that um, has influence. It doesn't necessarily rely on power or force to to uh, uh, put its message across, but uh, to have influence. Influence in a way that um, draws people to it rather than forces people into it. You know, I would never legislate that people do these kinds of things because that would uh, um, that would really negate the very essence of it, it has to be something that people do of their own free will and accord and hopefully with uh, with the intention to identify and realize their mission in life and uh, find their find their path of service we 've all got something we can contribute. Um, and I think these these plants, and particularly those we're speaking of uh, today, um, have the capacity to help us do that. Uh, they're not going to do it for us, but they're going to provide that needed guidance, a uh, little dose of wisdom and courage, and um, maybe a, a stronger embrace of our personal integrity to, to follow the right path Indeed. and not, uh, not fall into the... Uh, errors of our predecessors you know this is the time you know this is the generation that's going to be the turning point for the future <clears throat> we're there now we're we're at that threshold and how it goes from here is going to determine to a great extent i think the future of humanity and it's going to be a
0: massive you know this is the game of free will in mass yeah. you know everybody choosing to to bring their best forward yeah will be just enough. <laughs> yeah. You know, just enough if if we're all able to come together for that and that's and if not, you know, and if we give our best and we go out on our shield, so be it. But let's not go out without having given our heart. You know, let's not yeah. let this game unwind and let this thing go, you know, into oblivion without without giving everything we have.
1: And we don't you know, we don't want to go out in the last moment realizing all the missed opportunities that we uh, let slip through our fingers, you know, uh, some are, we're, we're going to miss some of those. I've missed some myself that mm-hmm. I look back on and say, boy, I wish I had been more awake at that particular time in my life. Sure. Uh, but I learned something from that. And, uh, uh, you know, so, um, uh, it's wake up time. It is. So let's, alarm uh, clocks, alarm clock went <laughs> off a little while ago. No time, no, no,
0: no more time for this news button. All right. let's uh let's go Hoka.
1: got to keep it going
0: well brother as you've always said the warrior's heart beats his one heart and what you've done here with your work and instilled in me and so many other you know thousands of people who've been through your center that work the ripples of that will go on for eternity so you know from my heart
1: thank you brother that thank you brother that validates (laughs) everything (laughs) i appreciate that thank you very much of course All right everybody
0: we love you that's all i got we love you do your thing you know love live enjoy count me in to the end to the end me too me too thanks brother thanks everybody after listening to this podcast some of you guys might be fired up to try out plant medicine and to give this experience a go obviously don howard can't provide enough spaces for all of you but if you want to check it out go to aubreymarcus.com faq i'm completely unaffiliated with any of these organizations but the places that i recommend are places that i can absolutely trust so if you're interested please check that out but only do so in response as don howard said to a calling i hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and i hope you guys also treat these plants and these medicines with the utmost respect and care and make sure that it's the right timing and the right place if you decide that
1: this is a path you want to undergo